to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about labor issues in New York City. Also going to be touching on political violence inside Brazil and going to be touching on uh, recent issues as it pertains to abortion rights and reproductive justice. And as always at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But to kick things off today, we are very happy to be joined by Amir Kafaji, an award-winning journalist based out of New York City, who you can follow on Twitter at Amir Kafaji91. Amir, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Well, the pleasure is all ours, Amir. And you recently published a piece on uh, DocumentedNY.com uh, talking about how the U.S.'s longest ongoing strike uh, ended with workers really quite unhappy with the results. And I'm speaking specifically about uh, the strike concerning the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 3, and uh, this country called Spectrum. Now, uh, to begin, I was hoping you could explain just you know, what Spectrum is as an entity, and how did this uh, labor struggle play out? Um, so Spectrum, uh, Charter Communications, which is, has the brand name called Spectrum Cable in New York, is essentially a monopoly in New York City. It's the largest cable, it's the second largest cable provider in the United States, um, and it's the largest cable provider in New York City. Um, it's a multi-billion dollar company. They purchased a company called Time Warner Cable, which was at the time, the largest cable company in New York City. And um, the workers were part of um, Local 3, and that was their union. And they were working for a few years, at least two or three years, without a contract with Time Warner Cable. And um, when Charter came in, uh, Charter began attempting to uh, cut back its the pension, the, the amount of money they were putting into the pension fund, and they wanted to replace the uh, union um, health care with a company-run health care uh, plan that was not as good or efficient. Um, so those were the reasons given for why um, Local 3 decided to go on strike at the time. Um, and that was back in 2017. Now we're in 2022. The workers are now without a union. Yeah, and I appreciate that background, Amir. And and how did things reach that point? Because my impression is that this was a pretty, you know, uh, uh, intense sort of struggle in terms of what, you know, the workers were sacrificing and, and the involvement of uh, the different workers that was there. But that, that seemed to sort of taper off as time went on. And my feeling is that there seemed to be, at least at one point, a kind of disconnect between the striking workers and the union leadership. So So how did that aspect of things play out? So, you know, essentially, um, at Spectrum, uh, Local 3 represented about 1,800 Spectrum workers. And it seems like now the workers were bamboozled by their union. Um, their union were the ones that convinced them to go on strike. They made a case to the workers, uh, to the rank and file, and said that the only way that they can uh, avoid having the company replace their pension fund and their health care um, with uh, inadequate company uh, health care and, and an inadequate company 401k plan was that if it was the idea of going on strike and the workers, um, the rank and file of Local Free, which is a very proud 
membership. You know, back I'm from Queens, New York, and in, and Local Three is based in Queens. It people are very proud to be members of Local Three. It's it's a it's considered very prestigious to be a, a Local Three member. So when the union says that we we have to go on strike, many of the members of Local Three they're very loyal to their union. They don't question it. They say that's the thing to do. And in the first few, and many thought it would only last a few months, at most a year. Very few uh, workers realized that they'll be on strike for five years. And um, as time went on, local three, the local three leadership slowly began to stop communicating with the with the, the rank and file. They stopped having meetings with the rank and file. They stopped updating them. And by the third year, most of the workers didn't even know uh, what was going on with the strike. And at that time, Spectrum began to replace um, the striking workers with scab labor. They started flying in cable workers from other states um, and to replace them. And essentially, it Look, uh, Spectrum Cable operated as if there was no strike to begin with. In fact, some of the contractors that Spectrum hired were member were other companies that hi- that hired local free labor. So it was it, it was just a very strange thing. And at that time, st- workers were struggling. Uh, many had to become um, had to find other jobs. I heard about this strike not through the mainstream media not through um, local activist circles. I learned from an Uber driver who, who I was in the back of an Uber and that driver was a former, um, was a striking worker. And he explained to me that they were on strike and what was going on. I didn't even, I never even heard about that strike. And that was, a, and at that point the strike was a year in. So um, it's very, it's very, many workers don't understand what exactly happened and why the union sold them out. So essentially after the five years, Spectrum Cable and Local 3 reached a settlement agreement in which the workers, the rank and file, don't have any clue what that settlement agreement is. Uh, Many just found out one day that Local 3 uh, uh, sent out a press release saying that the strike was over and that they they reached a settlement agreement and that they will no longer be representing Spectrum Cable workers, much to the chagrin of workers. Yeah, and so... Like we're saying, there was this, you know, serious uh, uh, strike that took place. The workers were all in, were very supportive uh, despite the risk. And uh, over time, like you say, communication sort of tapered off with the leadership. And as you say, there were some workers that weren't even aware of the state of things, which, I mean, is pretty wild when you talk about um, the state of a strike. I mean, one would think that communication between leadership and the rank and file would be uh, a pretty routine, if not constant. And the next thing they know, there was this settlement between the leadership and the company that the workers were completely unaware of. And you mentioned a moment moment ago, Amir, about some of the impacts that uh, 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 this had on the lives of the workers having to get other jobs and things like that. But what else were some of the impacts on workers? Because, I mean, these were serious uh, uh, life changing uh, dynamics that went on because of the realities in this strike. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say it had a devastating aspect on some people. So how did that look based on your research? Well, it, it, it was tragic. Five years on strike is a very long time for anybody to be on strike. And for a lot of these guys, even without a contract, working for Spectrum was a good paying job, right? They were made a lot of overtime. They were able to have their, um, their they were able to secure their quote unquote 
um, piece of middle class existence. Um, when the, they ended up going on strike, um, and and they dragged on from one day to one month to one year to five years. It, it, it was devastating. Um, many had lost um, their marriages. Their marriages had broken up. Um, their wives had left them. They, they, had, they took the kids. Um, people lost their homes, you know, because they could no longer pay the mortgage on their homes. And, and many, many even died. Um, some just got sick throughout the five years. and They, they never lived to see the day with the, that uh, the strike was settled. Um, so it was essentially, you know, I know one I wrote in my piece, one father, he is, he got a divorce and his daughter was struggling with leukemia and he, and he was struggling to find health care just to support her. So like this, this was a devastating thing for many of the workers. This strike was catastrophic. Many were suffering with mental health issues. Many were struggling with, with um, addiction. You know, many turned to the bottle because of the, just the, the amount of years being on strike and being out of work and having to take odd jobs here and there. It was a really devastating sacrifice for many of these workers and their union, the union to go on as long as it did without communicating what exactly was happening. And then finally one day the union releases a press release that don't even reach out to the, the rank and file directly. It's just a press release on their website saying, that's it. It's over. We did the best we could. We're sorry we don't represent you anymore. That's just that's not right, and that's and that's not just, and that's why the workers now they're, they're they're consulting labor lawyers trying to see what recourse they have. Because let me tell you, this is the most significant union loss of our generation. This is a, 1,800 workers in one of the largest cable companies in the United States in the union town, New York City, supposed to be a blue union town. And this, and for this to happen is a blow to the entire labor movement. Losing homes, losing wives, losing families, uh, alcohol abuse, even death. I mean, this is just these are the impacts of uh, uh, this labor struggle, because, frankly, you know, th this leadership was not uh, behaving with its workers as they should. And I got to say, Amir, and, and this is an aside. And because I'm sure you're aware, of course, we're we're living in a time um, of uh, uh, where we're almost it feels like a resurgence almost of a, a real labor movement in the United States. I mean, we're seeing organization efforts at uh, uh, Amazon and Starbucks. I was just looking at, you know, some some organizing efforts around Dollar General in, in the Deep South. And so people are really fighting back, uh, you know, against all of these things. And I, I know you see this, too, as someone who pays attention to uh, labor issues. We see people sort of cavalierly call for, you know, a, a, a general strike. Like it's just something you can up and do. Like you're just running to the store to grab a bag of chips or something, you know, like it's like, like it's simple. But when you talk about uh, uh, even just a strike in one particular local, let alone a general strike, I mean, this is a serious undertaking that requires a lot of resources and a lot of organizing, you know, beyond just sort of tweeting about these sorts of 
things. You know what I mean? And uh, oftentimes, you know, we deal with um, all of these setbacks and retreats and things like that. That's a part of the process for really fighting for these workers' rights. So what it tells me is that, you know, I just think in general, people have to have a very serious and sober minded way of thinking about these different labor struggles and understanding it's not a, you know, instant gratification sort of deal that it's a, a real as we're discussing, a real life and death uh, a situation with those very same kind of implications. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's going on strike is, is very difficult. It's not easy. Uh, it takes a toll on everybody that's involved in it. Um, it's, a, it's a tremendous sacrifice. So that's why, and I, you're right, I, you know, it, it, it could be annoying when you hear everyone just cavalierly saying, hey, let's go on strike and general strike, especially general strike, which is right. <laughs> crazy to organize. It's very difficult. Um, but these workers voted to go on strike. They, they, they knew that a certain amount of sacrifice was going to be involved, and they decided the union presented the situation to them in a way in which the, work, the rank and file felt that the only way that they could achieve their goals was to go on strike, and they did it. The union asked them to, and they did it out of loyalty for the union, right? And what I, I tend to always say is loyalty is for dogs, right? Loyalty gets you only so far. And in this situation, their loyalty for their union, their union uh, leadership, rather, because workers make up the union. The leadership doesn't make up the union. With the, the, uh, the union leadership got them in the, in the hole they're in now. And, and by the way, throughout this strike, it was the workers, the rank and file themselves that were keeping the momentum going at a certain point. The union was stopped doing pickets. The union stopped doing press releases. The union stopped doing all kinds of actions and events. And the rank and file themselves kept going. They started to do GoFundMe. They started to pull their resources together to make T-shirts and to make signs and to make hats and to do press releases and to go out and and even create their own cooperative cable company to compete against Spectrum. These workers were on the ground and um on on their own, keeping the momentum going because they were really made up the union. But because the they had no control of their will, that the union officials controlled their destiny, that's why the workers were in the hole they're in now. And that's why it's really important for rank and files to be independent, even of their union, because sometimes unions don't always have the best interests. Yeah. And, you know, I want to connect that to uh, a quote that um, was in your piece by someone named Feliciano. They said, quote, at this point, especially after all that happened to me, when you say the union, it's the brothers and sisters, it's the boots on the ground, the leadership, not so much. And so th these are the words to me of someone who wants a, a, a fighting union, you know, whether it's in uh, an established union or whether it's uh, independent, you know, as we've seen in, in different ways. And so uh, I think that that's, for me, a, a big part of the lesson to, to, to take away here, because, I mean, the, the, the workers here are clear that their struggle was just. It was justified. And these were things that they needed. They were more than holding up their end of the deal. It was just the leadership that 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 was not uh, uh, sort of doing that. And so I feel like as these uh, labor struggles continue here in the U.S., these are things to sort of look for, because I feel like the, the, the historic uh, sort of labor struggle 
struggle in the United States, both the struggle itself and the history of it has been seriously suppressed. And, and I don't think that's any coincidence. I think it's part of a sort of broader campaign to suppress workers' rights in general. And then if we look at the South, I mean, we see where, I mean, you know, there's just, you know, union presence uh, is is still uh, uh, rather slim. You know what I mean? But in, in understanding that, it's clear that when we talk about workers' rights, these are things that indeed uh, have to be struggled for uh, uh, vigorously, particularly as conditions in the U.S. Uh, continue to worsen on several levels. You know what I mean? I agree 100 percent. You know, and, and you're right. Like we're talking about this new renewed labor resurgence around the country um, where we're rightfully excited about the work that's happening on the ground at, at Starbucks and at Amazon, um, especially at the Amazon Labor Union, where it's a really uh, grassroots boots on the ground um, labor union that's independent and that's exciting and they were able to do what they were able to do because of their 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 base and connection on the ground with the workers and um, and it was completely worker led that's exciting right that's wonderful we should be praising that as a new model an old model but a renewed model to move forward in terms of organizing but yet there's many lessons to be learned from what just happened at, with the spectrum workers. Again, like I, I, like I said earlier, I truly believe this is the most significant labor um, defeat of our generation that should be studied and should be, we should understand it as best as we could. We still don't know all the facts about what happened with spectrum. And I'll, I'll continue reporting on what, what's going on and trying to find out what, if, what that exact nature of the settlement was and what workers are going to be doing in the future. But we should definitely learn um, a lot of hard lessons from how, you know, if, if workers could lose in the bluest of blue New York City in a union town and 1,800 workers lost their union after a five-year strike, what does that say about the labor movement as a whole, right? What does that say about the health of the labor movement? So I think there's hard lessons to be learned, and, and all organizers should be studying what happened with Spectrum. Yeah. And, you know, it really is wild because, you know, personally, I had no idea about this strike even It was going on for five years. And as you were noting, this was not something that was really covered um, by the mainstream media, nor did there seem to be a general awareness of it um, amongst uh, uh, progressives and movement people in general. And so that to me, Amir, I think speaks to, you know, the importance of uh, uh, alternative and independent media uh, like, you know, that which you produce, but also, you know, work produced media as well. I mean, it seems that it's always sort of on uh, uh, the struggling elements to really push their own narrative as it's uh, completely suppressed in the mainstream institutions that benefit from their exploitation. And the workers themselves realize that as well. And you're absolutely right. And what's exciting about the spectrum work uh, strike is a a lot of amazing things came out of it, right? For one, workers... After a few years on the strike, workers felt like they had to do something. They couldn't just sit around and wait for the union to, to make some sort of settlement. So workers and the workers seeing a gap in the in the media coverage with their strike and seeing all these other strikes get covered and, and no one even knew what was going on with them. Workers started to produce YouTube shows and they started to mm. produce local cable television shows, right? Local ac- cable access television shows. Um, they also created their own Wi-Fi and cable network called People's Choice. It was a worker-led cooperative um, run by uh, striking spectrum workers. And um, right now, People's Choice is they're uh, building a Wi-Fi network in several public housing projects in Queens and Brooklyn. So um, 
they understood the importance of having worker-led, worker-controlled media. And, and, and so I just, it's, it's funny that you mention that because the workers themselves realize that. Why was this not covered? I have no clue, right? This is 1,800 workers in the media capital of the world. And no one really knew what was happening. It took me, the only reason I knew about it was because I was sitting in the back of an Uber and the driver was a, was a striking worker. It, it doesn't make any sense. And it shows the weakness of the labor movement. If all the other labor unions in New York City didn't have solidarity with this group, right? All the other progressive organizations in, um, in New York City didn't have any sort of solidarity action with uh, the spectrum workers. It, just, it, it, it was appalling. It didn't make sense. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Amir, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back. So by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about political violence in Brazil. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by independent journalist Natalia Urban. Natalia, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, Sean. Great to be here. And it's great to have you, Natalia. And Brazil, of course, is less than 90 days away from its election, where we are set to see uh, a run by a popular progressive uh, figure, Lula da Silva, who was uh, uh, jailed for some years as Brazil took uh, a hard right wing turn under uh, Jair Bolsonaro. And as we get closer and closer to that election, we're seeing more and more uh, terror threats from Bolsonaro himself. Uh, his administration and his supporters. I mean, he's been uh, uh, threatening a sort of a uh, 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 coup type event uh, or something or a raid like we saw similar to January 6, 2021 here in the United States where armed fascists uh, attacked uh, the Capitol, all these sorts of things. And here lately, we've seen this culminate in the murder of a Workers' Party member uh, named Marcelo Arruda. And just to get an understanding of how things sort of developed to this point Natalia, I was hoping you could sort of describe the uh, the environment, the political landscape, if you will, of Brazil uh, and how that leads us to the death of Marcelo Arruda. Well, Sean, Brazilians are facing daily threats by Bolsonaro that the elections won't happen. And if they if they do, uh, he will discredit the results of the elections, because according to him, uh, the bailout system, the electoral system is rigged against him by like the international communists or whatever. Uh, and basically now he knows he's going to lose the election. So he's trying to use his weekly uh, Facebook events with his supporters to try to radicalize people, saying to people, listen, I don't want us to repeat what has happened in the United States, uh, talking about like the Capitol episode, but we have to take uh, uh, 
the problem in your hands. We have to go to the streets. We have to protest against the attacks that the left is throwing against us. So he has been talking a lot about the so-called attacks that people are like uh, planning against him. It, in those attacks being like the the pollings uh, uh, that are showing that he's way behind Lula, and he keeps like giving like hate speeches against the left and tell we are all like uh, really dangerous individuals. So in a two days before Marcelo's being murdered, Bolsonaro mentioned by name the event of January 6th on his uh, Facebook live saying that it was he was not wanting something similar, but if something happened, it would be okay because it would be mean that people would be fighting against the rise of the left in Brazil. So about Marcelo's murder, he was at his own birthday party. It was his 50-year-old birthday party. He was with his family, with his friends, and someone that was not invited to the party also um someone who was a federal police officer uh, invaded the space uh, where the party was happening, uh, saw that the party was, uh, because he had some intel, now we have like more evidence that he had some intel that people from the left uh, that were also from the police were in, in this space, in that space that is like a club for police officers um, in Foz do Iguaçu, southern region of Brazil. Um, and he decided to go there because he knew they were like leftists. They were like people from members from the Workers' Party. So he invaded the party. He said some very offensive things um, through the guests. The guests said to him, you have to leave. You are not invited. They have like some sort of like discussion. And Marcelo, the birthday uh, man, basically throw a bit of like dirt from like a, a vase uh, in direction of the man. The man left in his car and he went back 20, 10 to 20 minutes after with his gun shooting everybody in the party. According to Pamela's, Marcelo's wife, she said that the man was like, uh, he saw Marcelo was already down and he shot Marcelo like in front, like looking into Marcelo and like profaning words of like, oh, you are horrible. You are like leftist. You all have to die. And unfortunately, Marcelo died that way, that's in, in a horrible way. Um, the murder isn't still in hospital because he was also shot because, again, it was like all the people, the majority of the people attending the party were members of the police force. So they were uh, carrying weapons. But the thing is, like now Bolsonaro is trying to use this uh, to uh, exempt himself from like the the guilt that he has of like radicalizing his supporters and saying that this is not the way that has happened. This was not a politically motivated crime. Yeah. And uh, I'm, I'm curious why you think 
You know, Bolsonaro is is sort of harping so hard on this like red scares sort of tactic and painting, you know, pictures about, uh, you know, communist terrorists or whatever uh, are ravaging Brazil. I mean, the intensity of it makes me think that it's deeper than, you know, just his own uh, uh, ideology. But there seems to be some real um, utility for him in doing that. And not just like for him, but for like the new far right or like old school fascist project. Uh, basically, according to uh, Bolsonaro's geopolitical son, the Bannon boy, Eduardo Bolsonaro, Brazil is the last country uh, that is not have been invaded by the red uh, evil communists in South America. Brazil has the uh, moral obligation to uh, stand for the conservatives in the region, according to him. And he has been working with several international connections, people from the EU, uh, people from the United States, of course, but mainly with other um, small at the moment, uh, um, candidates or like political movements from other South American countries. And this is like they are looking at Brazil as like their last uh, uh, hope for like one day having a big ally in their like own intents of like getting power. And also it's interesting that the whole far right is also like extremely mobilized in getting Bolsonaro elected. A few weeks ago, um, in the week actually where Marcelo was murdered, uh, Bolsonaro received in Brazil the president of Hungary, um, to discuss cooperations between the countries and also how to uh, move forward with their agenda of like conservatives and like Christians and families, whatever they like to talk about. And in the same week, uh, a Vox, the far right Spanish party um, representative in the European Parliament uh, gave a speech uh, trying to also defend Bolsonaro against the accusations of the murder of the indigenous uh, Bruno Pereira in the Amazon. So they are all working with this sort of like, oh, there's the global left is working to destroy Bolsonaro and we have to support him in defeating the evil communist Lula in Brazil. Hmm. And uh, you made an interesting point when you talked about uh, the connection between uh, uh, Bolsonaro and kind of this uh, uh, old uh, fascist movement in uh, Brazil that uh, now is seemingly working with uh, uh, the newer uh, fascistic tendencies. I mean, how deep is that in Brazil? And I feel like that's a, a large question. But I mean, we know that Bolsonaro is something, you know, is someone who has openly pined for the days of the military dictatorship in Brazil, um, has really made no secret of his, you know, uh, far right uh, connections and politics. And so my question really is, how impactful is that kind of uh, a near fascistic sort of politic? Like, how deep does that run within uh, uh, Brazil's environment? 
Well, for uh, regarding like his connections with the militaries is very divided. Uh, there is, of course, the, he has his own generals, the ones that are in government, by the way. And there is a part of the generals. I'm not saying they are nice. They are good for Brazil or, and, or for the people in Brazil, but they, they are against Bolsonaro. They say that Bolsonaro is embarrassing um, the, the armed forces in Brazil, putting them in a, a place that that um, it's not acceptable anymore. Like someday it was acceptable. Nowadays it's not anymore. But, um, and of course, Bolsonaro has a part. I don't know how much, no one knows per se at this point, uh, how much of like the bourgeoisie, the Brazilian bourgeoisie, the, the, the big money in Brazil with him. But I think the most important thing is like, uh, all the sectors are very divided in this moment. Like we have like a part of like um, Christians that uh, a part of like progressive Christians, even like from evangelicals and Catholics are like way divided between Bolsonaro and Lula. Uh, we have like uh, the polarization is very real, but it's not real the way the mainstream media is talking about like both sides are very radical no one side is just like trying to make their own campaign and educate people about like a better future and the other side is basically invading birthday parties and killing a dead of four children but um, i would say that everything is very divided but uh, my main concern at the moment and the concern of other people in Brazil wire is not the support that Bolsonaro is having within Brazil, but the outside support. Hmm. And could you say more about this outside support for Bolsonaro? What does that look like? Well, um, the outside support being, uh, let's remember, uh, just because we were talking about January 6th, let's remember that um, Eduardo Bolsonaro was the only foreigner around, like, Trump War Council and that day. He was the only invite, uh, invited that was not uh, from the U.S. government. Um, let's also remind that Bolsonaro... Um, keeps like uh, feeding onto those that narrative that the United States election were a fraud. He keeps like uh, talking with people like uh, not just Steve Bannon, but like Mike Lindell. He has their connections with the Europeans from the Foro de Madrid, which is um, international association of like far-right pro-conservatives movements from um, Iberian countries in Europe and also from countries in Latin America. He has now the support of this, uh, the radicalized Christian people that are pro-life. He has the support of the military industry because of like his uh, way, uh, his uh, changes on the gun laws in Brazil. So the thing is, we don't know per se, uh, how this will work out in the end for him. But to say that um, he's alone and abandoned, it's not, a tr it's not true. It's simply not true because like he has a bunch of allies that are working in their own way to try not just like undermine the, the presence of Lula in Brazil, but also to uh, normalize a possible a future coup in the country as well.
Yeah, and we've been talking about, you know, uh, the connections between uh, politics in Brazil and the January 6th attack uh, here in the U.S. I mean, uh, wasn't uh, one of Bolsonaro's sons, Eduardo, somehow involved or present while all of that was happening on January 6th? Or what was going on there? Yes, he was. At, like I said, he was at the war council with Trump. He was the only one that was not from the U.S. government that has or like a direct Trump ally uh, that was invited to be there. And it's very interesting that whenever um, a, a, one day before Marcelo murder uh, was murdered, actually, uh, Carlos, which is the, the son that is behind Bolsonaro's social media, uh, he posted a picture say, on Twitter with a, uh, of him in Capitol Hill, in front of Capitol Hill, saying, well, um, people might try to normalize a president that has been in jail, a party that has been involved in like corruption scandals, but people will say that me showing that uh, this picture is a threat to democracy. So they are really threatening to post something similar in Brazil. They are in contact. Like I said, Eduardo has been with Mike Lydell several times. He has been one of the main uh, uh, attractions in the in his ridiculous summit last year regarding the elections in the United States. Um, so he has been in contact with all those people that are being currently investigated in the United States by like trying to foment a coup in your country. So um, now we don't know per se how they're going to try to play out the same in Brazil because we don't have the same gun laws in Brazil. But uh, even though we know many Bolsonaro supporters are from the armed forces or like the police, uh, we don't have the same gun power for them to do something that would be like similar uh, to the United States. What they're going to try to do, what they are trying to do at the moment is trying to discredit the electoral process and to cause this like sort of like smallish but deadly ruckus uh, around Brazil. Like not just like a few days after Marcelo being murdered, we had an incident at a branch of the Workers' Party in Goiás, which someone tried to set it on fire. So they are trying to do those smallish things to distract the fact that uh, they are probably trying to plan something big for the elections. Yeah, and speaking of the elections, Natalia, like I mentioned at the uh, top of our discussion here, you know, Brazil is less than 90 days away from the election. And given what we've discussed here, I mean, it, it seems like the stakes are, are pretty high. And I mean, what what do you think this uh, election could mean for uh, uh, Brazil moving forward? I mean, obviously, you know, we don't have a crystal ball and don't want to be too predictive, but it does seem as if the results of this election or generally speaking, what happens around that process could have some serious implications for Brazil as a country moving forward. Well, uh, Sean, unfortunately, Brazil uh, moved back with Bolsonaro in power. Mm. So we don't need to even like move forward. We need to like uh, get back to where we were before Bolsonaro uh, uh, were empowered. Uh, 
Brazil is back on the hunger map. There are like 30 million people that are currently starving in the country. We are seeing like uh, record levels of like deforestation in the Amazon. We are seeing like record levels of like the killing of um, native people. We are seeing uh, we are seeing like um, uh, record levels of like police violence in the country, of unemployment, of like the government like lacking of like investments in education and healthcare and like everything. So basically Bolsonaro was able in 40 years to destroy, or less than 40 years actually, to destroy everything that uh, PT took like 12 years in powers to build. So we are talking about like people are not just like voting. Lula's campaign is very simple. He's not like uh, promising um rainbows and diamonds and ponies for everybody. He's promising, well, I want to feed you again because that's the way we stand in Brazil right now. People don't know where they're going to eat. People don't know where they're going to sleep. People don't know if they're going to have like a proper health care. People don't know anything because Bolsonaro destroyed the country and it's still destroying because like he's still trying to sell the little that has left in Brazil to the private sector, especially the foreigner investors. So Bolsonaro, again, he's the he. That's why he has so many allies abroad because he's giving away everything Brazil has more precious, like it's mining, it's water, um, it's uh, uh, oil, and it's people as well. So uh, we are talking about an elections that will define if people will able to live or die. We thank you so much, Natalia, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about the latest developments in the struggle around reproductive rights. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Alexis Moncada, a staff writer for Breaking the Change magazine and a Denver organizer. Alexis, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, thank you guys for having me on to talk about this. Absolutely. And we appreciate having you on, Alexis. And we've been seeing uh, a lot being reported lately on uh, a pregnant 10-year-old girl in Ohio that was forced to cross state lines to have an abortion uh, because of the recent attacks on abortion rights here in the U.S. And this is a story that was maybe not surprisingly, but to me still shockingly just outright denied uh, by the right wing who, of course, has been the vanguard against abortion rights in this country for years. And so, Alexis, I was hoping you could help us understand what are uh, uh, the details of this story and how have we seen uh, this narrative sort of shift as time has gone on? Yeah, of course. 
So as we know, you know, the decision to overturn Roe v. Wade has paved the way for states to begin passing, you know, outright bans on abortion and access to abortion. And Ohio is one of those states that's likely to undergo a complete ban on abortion. And so just days after the decision was made to overturn Roe v. Wade, a case came about where a 10-year-old girl who had been victim of rape was looking to her medical professional to be able to provide her an abortion. And that medical professional, Dr. Bernard, she was, you know, forced to reach out to some of her fellow colleagues in Indiana who still had some protections for abortion access. And so the child, you know, was forced to travel across state lines hours and hours, which is something that maybe isn't accessible for everyone in the first place. But by the off chance that this was accessible for her, you know, she was able to travel to Indiana to receive the abortion. And what we've been saying is the right wing are just completely outright denying that this happened and going on, you know, Fox News and all of these other very popular media networks and saying that this story is like entirely fabricated and that there's no evidence to support this story. But, you know, the truth is that the the rapist confessed to what he did and there's documentation that the mother reported the pregnancy in June. So for them to go on, you know, live network and say, you know, this never happened and to never retract their statements and to never apologize for like continuing the traumatization of a rape victim who is not only a rape victim but a child is just it's outlandish and now they're going after the medical professional who referred the child to the Indiana professional to receive an abortion and they're threatening criminal charges and it's it's just an outright attack on not only abortion recipients but abortion providers and people who are in good faith trying to get their patients the medical treatments that they need to live Definitely. And and namely, uh, this was Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost who would uh, go on Fox News. And he said that there was, quote, not a whisper of evidence that supported this story of this 10 year old rape victim. And the Wall Street Journal, a platform that's considered uh, quite legitimate in the mainstream media here in the U.S., called the story of this 10 year old, quote, a fanciful tale. And that's in an article that they titled An Abortion Story Too Good to Confirm. And so we're talking about, I mean, just uh, a a wild sort of attack on this denial on this young girl, her situation, her family and all of that. And as you mentioned, even after um, a person confessed to raping this child, you know, there was no apology, like you say, no retraction from this uh, uh, from these media platforms. It just kept on with business as usual. And to me, Alexis, uh, this helps helps point to the uh, fundamental mental inhumanity of these anti-abortion uh, uh, elements. They will even attack a 10-year-old rape victim uh, to uh, sort of satisfy their own political ends and uh, refuse to uh, apologize for it. But I feel like that's the reality of sort of uh, where we are in terms of the struggle for reproductive rights in the United States, which for years has been a project of the far right and has not been fought against at all by a uh, Uh, the democratic wing of the ruling class. You know what I mean? And so, you know, in general, it just seems that when we look at the response uh, from this uh, overturning of Roe v. Wade and how people, you know, flooded the streets in response, I really feel like that kind of action, that kind of organized movement work is what's really needed here as we see that uh, uh, women really have no help coming uh, from the political mainstream as it pertains to this issue. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, of course. And, you know, the right is organized. They've been organized for decades around this issue, and we need to out-organize them. And like you said, like the Democratic Party, they're not coming to save us. I mean, it's almost unheard of how little action they're taking right now to actually regain abortion access. You know, Joe Biden is basically saying there's nothing we can do, and it seems like the Democratic Party is behind that line. Well, there's nothing we can do, but, you know, hope that we can vote in more Democrats in November. And that's just that's not going to work. Like, how many people are going to need an abortion between now and November? They're just willing to sacrifice all of these women's lives, all of these children's lives. And it's it's, it's going to be up to us to get in the streets and to make sure that we regain abortion access and that it, it remains protected. And I think that, you know, it's going to take a lot of people and it's going to take a large struggle. But that's something that our grandmothers and their mothers were part of that struggle decades ago. And that's like continuing ongoing legacy where we don't have to come up with all of it, you know, on we can learn from like the organizers that organized around this like decades ago. And, you know, what I'm also thinking is just like this is just another example of how these like right wing legislators and politicians can say, oh, we support rape. I mean, we'll support abortion in the case of like rape or incest. But look at how that actually plays out. And like if you are um, eliminating access to abortion and like all these abortion clinics are closing and someone needs an abortion because it's necessary to save their lives, they won't be able to access the materials that they may need, may need to perform an abortion. And then they'll may, they might have to travel. And that's a threat to their life because we don't know, like, what the case-by-case may be with them. And so, you know, they can say they support these exceptions, but in practice, like, everyone is endangered, even people who do need an abortion for those specific reasons. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, Joe Biden, someone who has always been bad um, on the uh, issue of abortion, regardless of some of his pronouncements on Twitter. And Alexis, you recently published a piece about this on BreakingTheChainsMag.org entitled Pregnant Ohio uh, Ten-Year-Old Forced to Cross State Lines for an Abortion. And in it, you you talk about how uh, uh, sort of abortion legislation or abortion bans, perhaps I should say, in states like Ohio, put children's lives at risk like we saw in the case of this 10-year-old girl that we've been discussing. And I was hoping you could tell us uh, more about that and how that looks and how this kind of, um, you know, state-by-state cases that uh, seems to be the situation in terms of uh, having these resources available and what that sort of looks like in real time. Yeah, so we're already seeing like a lot of states that are like Texas who are ready to pass. I mean, there's already 13 states who have what are called trigger laws, which are laws that, you know, if Roe v. Wade was overturned, which it has, it would immediately like initiate bans on abortion. And so so we're having some states who already have that and who already have like abortion clinics closing. Like the day that Roe v. Wade was overturned, there were women in clinics who had to be turned away because those providers could no longer give them an abortion and so this is something that we're seeing that's already affecting so many people and you know you also have to think about the fact that you know children who are forced to be pregnant like the, the just the immense health risk of that you know they're like more likely to give a birth prematurely their children are likely to have lower birth weights other health issues and just like a child's body is not always equipped to birth another child and that's something that we're going to see forced onto children and onto women and you know even if there isn't a health risk like if a woman makes the decision that she needs and wants an abortion then she should have that protection and what we're seeing is like 
just this complete, like, I believe over 20 states are looking to make a ban on abortion, whether or not there is an exception, but some are moving towards, you know, complete bans. And that's going to look like even states who have abortion protections, like example, Colorado, being overwhelmed with their abortion clinics because they're going to have to step up to be able to provide abortions for out-of-state um, women and children. So that's going to look like it's going to be a stress on just everyone in this country. Yeah. And, you know, I also think a lot, uh, Alexis, about, you know, the right continues to push this moralistic uh, narrative around uh, abortion, right? Like that that's always been their thing, that that they're pro-life, right? And that they just care so much about the babies that they want um, these things to be in place. But I feel like lately, you know, or well, to be honest, I feel like people have actually been, you know, aware that, you know, the falseness of that for some time. But I feel like here lately, in this most recent period, after this overturning of Roe v. Wade, it's clear that this is really about the oppression of women as a whole. And it's hard not to see the kind of class and race dynamics that are inherent in that as, you know, uh, uh, you know, a poor working class women aren't necessarily going to be able to afford going to this or that um, uh, facility in states that do, in fact, uh, allow these things. And even if they can make it there, as you're pointing out, uh, uh, these um, facilities that are left that are providing these resources will become even more more and more burden. And so in truth, it, it really feels like an attack on women, an attack on uh, poor, working and oppressed people in general. And I feel like uh, more and more people are seemingly looking at it that way uh, as it's clear that uh, it's really going to take that kind of uh, struggle in the streets, that kind of sustained, organized effort that we were talking about earlier to really make a change on this because the people who are both pushing this and refusing to fight for it, speaking of Democrats, Democrats and uh, Republicans are of one particular class, while those who uh, uh, stand to face the brunt of it represent another class element. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's working class women who struggle with access to health care and contraception and are, like you said, like being able to travel to get an abortion. That requires being able to afford not only the procedure, which can cost hundreds of dollars, but to take that time off of work and to not work for however many days it takes to travel to receive the abortion and to be in like a good health standing. And, you know, most people who are working and living paycheck to paycheck simply can't afford to do that. And, you know, that's already a struggle that's been ongoing with even prior to Roe v. Wade being overturned with, like, abortion clinics just being very hard to access, like, with about two being available in some states and things like that. And so that was already a huge problem in that. And this is just going to exacerbate that problem. And it's going to leave so many women with just no choice but to carry the their, the baby to full, for, to full term. So. Yeah, totally. And the last thing I wanted to ask about Alexis was how women's liberation and not only just uh, abortion rights, though, it's certainly an aspect of it. Women's liberation is tied to so many issues facing struggling people in the U.S. right now. Um, I saw a video of a, of a protest 
that had a great chant that said a reproductive and trans rights, same struggle, same fight. And that, of course, is speaking directly uh, to the connection with the LGBTQ struggle. But in truth, if you take a step back and look at all these other problems that are facing people in the U.S. and in some ways the world right now in terms of uh, climate change, workers' rights, racism, all these sorts of things, these are all women's issues as well. And so I feel like it's important to understand it in that context. So we see that all these issues are not disconnected. They don't operate in a vacuum. They are interconnected. And I think if we organize around them in that way, we'll be able to build an even stronger movement that can really make progress. Yeah, and I absolutely agree with that. You know, the attacks that we're seeing on trans people and their right to receive you know, the necessary medical care that they need to make the transitions that they want is, you know, very similar to the attacks that we're seeing on women and their right to make decisions about what happens to their own body. And, you know, it's important to acknowledge that this system on its foundations, it's sexist, it's racist, it's classist, it's transphobic. It is all of these things. And you can't fight for one without kind of seeing how all of them are so connected and depend on each other. And like racism depends on sexism, which depends on classism, transphobia and homophobia in order to maintain like the division of working class people. And that division supports our system, our capitalist system that wants to see us all divided. And, you know, it, it takes us coming together and uniting across like race, sex, sexual orientation, all across all of those differences and understanding how all of our issues are interconnected and we're in the same struggle and it's the same fight. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Alexis, for joining us today. Definitely encourage people to check out your article on BreakingTheChangeMag.org and Breaking the Change magazine in general. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Monday, July 18th, 2022. And of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to Give us a call here by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today, anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you, but that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show, because at that time, 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard, you will be able to hit us up at 202-521-1320. That's two. 02521-1320. Our operators are standing by. You can also uh, check out our shows at sputniknews.com slash radio underscore by underscore any underscore means. You can also download our shows on sputnik.mave.digital. That's sputnik.mave.digital. You can also hit us up on Twitter at BAM Necessary. And as always, we're broadcasting live from Rumble. That's rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. But wherever you are in this world, 
We want to hear from you. And we are very happy to be joined for the hour today by Eugene Perrier, host of the Punch-Out! podcast on Breakthrough News and author of the book Shackled and Chained, Mass Incarceration in Capitalist America. Eugene, thanks so much for joining us. John, it's my absolute pleasure to be here with you. Well, the pleasure is all ours, Eugene. And to kick things off today, uh, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has suspended two high-ranking figures in his government, uh, namely Prosecutor General Irina Venediktova and State Security Service Head Ivan Bakanov, who is reportedly a longtime associate of Zelensky. Now, uh, the deputy head of the Office of the President of Ukraine, Andrei Smirnov, uh, has said on Ukraine. Ukrainian television, quote, for a long enough time, we have been waiting for more concrete and sufficiently radical results from the leaders of these two departments to clean those two departments of collaborators and state traitors. However, in the sixth month of the war, we continue to find packs of these people in each of these departments. And Zelensky has said that there are, quote, 651 criminal proceedings that have been registered regarding treason and collaboration activities of employees of prosecutors' offices, uh, pretrial investigation bodies, and other law enforcement agencies. Now, uh, to be clear, when uh, Zelensky and his uh, administration are talking about treason and collaboration, they're talking about collaboration with Russia. And I couldn't help but think Eugene, about how, you know, Zelensky has outright banned uh, not one, not two, but 11 opposition parties in Ukraine. And and that's including the Communist Party of Ukraine that has not only been banned, but has had its uh, uh, assets seized by the state. I also want to note two brothers, Alexander Kononovich and Mikhail Kononovich, who led the Leninist Communist Youth Union of Ukraine, were also arrested and have been subject to what they called a show trial uh, uh, because of their anti-imperialist. Uh, uh, activities. Now, taking all this into consideration, uh, Eugene, and sort of taking a look at uh, the political situation inside Ukraine as the war continues, this this seems to be kind of striking to me. It it kind of feels like a a shakeup of sorts in uh, the Zelensky government, which if we look at the narrative that we're told in the U.S. and the West doesn't really track because we're told that everything's gravy is that, you know, the, the Ukrainian government and uh, uh, the Ukrainian military in terms of the war is doing gangbusters. Everything's cool. They are molly whopping Russia, uh, uh, you know, in this conflict is what we're being told. Now, you know, I, I don't uh, I personally think that there's uh, probably, you know, uh, uh, some some greater context there, maybe not quite. Um, uh, uh, the reality of things. But even still, given how things have developed to this point, as it regards the war in Ukraine, I'm wondering what you make not only of this move by Zelensky, but what do you think it may reflect about the state of the conflict at this point? Well, you know, it's an interesting question, Sean. And I feel that there's a couple pieces that are kind of nestled in here that I think is relevant. And, you know, I think one is it it really does make me wonder what is the internal consistency of Zelensky's government and is he really in charge? And to what extent is the pressure of the war starting to break apart, you know, some of the different elements of, of the broader government? I mean, you know, you may remember it was just a couple of weeks back, I think it was now, that this controversy emerged where 
there was an order that came from the Ukrainian military, from the high command, that no fighting age men could leave like their county or whatever the Ukrainian equivalent is of county uh, without some level of permission. And the whole context basically was around, well, they were trying to prevent people who could fight from not fighting. And then, you know, so there's a big sort of outroar, outcry, uproar, uh, you know, that happened around this. And then like the next day it was rescinded. And Zelensky had said something to the fact that how he had not actually ordered that. And I believe he used a phrase that was like, yeah, and I told them don't do anything like this without checking me with me in the future. But you know, to make a major order like that, that was, of course, being widely panned because it uh, certainly at least appeared to really be infringing on the civil liberties of people there in Ukraine. And I think, as you pointed out, you know, it's supposed to be all truth, light, freedom and democracy over there under Zelensky. Um, but the very fact that you would do something like that without checking with him in the first place, to me, seemed notable. And, you know, there have been rumors about this that have sort of been flying around for you know, various moments, there's, you know, varying levels of evidence around them that, you know, Zelensky himself is not really in charge or, you know, that he's one powerful figure of many and that, you know, in some ways he only has limited control of the government and so on and so forth. And, you know, this has also been, you know, a factor really since what took place in the Maidan in 2014, like a lot of people, of course, have pointed out, and I know that you all have been reporting on this and on by any means necessary, you know, pretty much since day one here, uh, about the role of various neo-Nazi forces inside of the police and other elements of the state. And that really came about because in the 2014 period where you had this massive purging of the state, because everyone who is, you know, perceived to be quote-unquote pro-Russia, and I'll circle back around to that in a second, which is, I think, the other piece of the story, you know, is basically out. And so the state in and of itself becomes this amalgamation of these various political groupings, political parties, armed groups, militias, and these Nazis are able to play an outsized role, um, you know, as an armed force. So I think really from 2014 to now, you know, this has been a major question, and I think it's an interesting question. And that, to me, is one of the things that really stood out when I saw that these individuals had been fired, is like how much of this is is not what they say, and how much of it is internal power plays, and what does that say about the overall decay of the Ukrainian government? I can't say I know, but I think it's an interesting fact, and I think it's one worth considering when we consider the state of the war. You know, I think the second piece of what you're laying out, I think, is, is right, is sort of you know, what does it mean to be, you know, treasonous or pro-Russia? I mean, you know, we've seen all sorts of things from Zelensky on this even before the war. I mean, when we're talking about the Zelensky camp, I mean, they said that Petro Poroshenko, the previous president of, you know, Ukraine, who was sort of outstandingly hostile to Russia and, in fact, only came to power because he was willing to collaborate with the U.S.-EU-NATO plan for Ukraine to become uh, essentially a military base for NATO right on Russia's border. And, you know, they were saying that he was some sort of Russian traitor or collaborator when they tried to charge him. That's now sort of gone away now, but I'm just saying that that was obviously laughable. And so essentially it seems that what we've seen so far is being pro-Russia in a treason, or rather treason is not actually doing anything vis-a-vis the Russian war effort, but having a different view of how Ukraine should relate to Russia and a different view of how the conflict should be carried out. And that seems to be enough to be considered treasonous. Um, you know, no, as, as far as I've seen, there's no real other evidence that's been really put forward there. I mean, you know, there was a period where there was a number of people who were arrested from the uh, opposition platform for Life Party for, you know, taking photos. And they were saying they were taking photos of checkpoints to send them to Russia or whatever it may be. But, you know, a lot of it seems, just to be honest, 
somewhat dubious. And, you know, obviously we're in the context of a war, so I'm sure there are people who are working in various capacities to assist the Russian war effort, but it doesn't really seem that that's what's happening. It seems that there is a much wider dragnet that is being used, and like we see in countries all the time, the issue of war is being used to silence all forms of dissent. And you look at, you know, groups like the Communist Party, who you mentioned, the opposition parties, you know, I mean, the opposition platform for life, and, you know, they were coming out against, uh, you know, the Russian activities, uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So then all of a sudden they turned into treasonous traitors, you know, a few weeks later. So it seems that similar to a process that began again before the war, that really started a lot of the tensions going when Zelensky in early 2021 started cracking down on opposition media platforms and accusing people, uh, you know, of being Russian agents with seemingly no evidence that this is sort of a carryover, that the political forces um, that are behind him are seeking to close down any space to criticize any of the policies of the government, be it vis-a-vis Russia or be it vis-a-vis, you know, many of the neoliberal reforms that, you know, a lot of things are not being looked at right now in Ukraine, but labor laws are being rolled back in Ukraine. Strikes have been banned in Ukraine. I mean, all these various other, you know, protections, many of which are holdovers from the Soviet era, that post-2014 have been rolled back Significantly, the Kanadovich brothers, who you mentioned, by the way, um, you know, were previously well known for standing up against land privatization. But anyway, I won't go on and on. I think the key points to me about seeing this shuffle is a: how much control does Zelensky really have? What's going on with the different power centers in the government? What does that say about the conflict and where it's going from here? Um, and then two, I think there's a real question of why it is that the West continually seems to be presenting the Ukrainian government and this, you know, it couldn't be more democratic. You know, I don't know, Roger Williams, you know, came down from heaven or whatever the Rhode Island equivalent is uh, and set up, you know, the best ever government in Ukraine or something. Uh, Why is that how it's being portrayed when there's a huge amount of evidence going back to prior to the war that raises a lot of questions about how the power of the state is being used to to close down dissent, to close down alternative viewpoints? Um, So, yeah, I'll leave that there. Yeah, definitely. And to be honest, the fact that uh, that is the image that's portrayed to us, despite evidence to the contrary, really just makes it seem like uh, that image of Ukraine is just a part of this broader propaganda war around uh, uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine that certainly uh, has been going on from the time of uh, the February 24th operation, really beforehand when, you know, there was all this kind of uh, Fear mongering uh, uh, from the U.S. and the West about you know an imminent um, uh, Russian invasion, and I mean it's, it seems to me that they could be so sure about it because they knew that the U.S. and NATO had uh, basically created such a situation for that to happen, and so it just seems like that the popular consciousness of the people in the U.S., like so many other issues, was just positively pummeled. With uh, that narrative and that image of Ukraine and that image of Zelensky, who I mean, it just feels like there was a real attempt to position Zelensky, the individual, as an almost heroic sort of figure with uh, Vladimir Putin being positioned as this, you know, irredeemable, uh, villainous uh, mustache twirling type of figure. I mean, I don't think he has a mustache, but you dig what I'm saying. Just this sort of over the top bad guy who who did this for no other reason than, uh, you know, bloodlust or maybe sheer boredom or whatever. But when one considers that, you know, the demonization of Russia and before Russia, the Soviet Union uh, has been going on, you know, for 
a long time at this point. And certainly the demonization of Putin as a leader has been going on from the time that he came into power. And so it feels like there's sort of multiple strands of imperialist propaganda that the American people have been steadily imbibing for all this time. And that really comes in handy in a moment like this, uh, uh, where we see this proxy war, which which we always uh, make note to, to call it that. Um, to basically justify this proxy war as it's happening and that for everything else around that to be obscure. In the mind of the U.S. and Western governments, literally nothing else matters other than the fact that the that Russia invaded Ukraine back on February 24th. You're not supposed to talk about context. You're not supposed to talk about history. You're not supposed to have even one scintilla of nuance when discussing this. And if you do, well, then your hands are just as bloody as uh, of Vladimir Putin. So you dig what I'm saying? It's just sort of like that that narrative of this, you know, politically idyllic Ukraine seems to factor into all of that. But I, I, I start to, I'm starting to get the feeling like the general attitude around this war may be shifting somewhat, not the least of which because of material conditions here in the U.S. that we can get into later. But I said a lot there, Eugene, but, but what I'm generally uh, uh, asking is, you know, do you see this image put forth of Ukraine as part and parcel of this broader information warfare against Russia that the U.S. government has admitted that it's in? I think so, for sure, Sean. I mean, the reality is, is I mean, everything you just said lays it out. I mean, I think whatever one thinks about what Russia did, good, bad, or indifferent, I think when you're in a situation where people are saying that literally no aspect of the story can in any way, shape, or form be questioned, the mainstream story, and to ask any questions, no matter how you know, in good faith they may be, means that you are just a Russian propagandist. That right there should, in my view, let people know that there's more to the story than what they're being told and what they're hearing. And I think, quite frankly, it has to be that way because functionally, I don't think most people would want to be that involved in what's going on, want the U.S. to be that involved in what's going on if they knew all the, the issues. I mean, you know, this is an issue that, you know, Barack Obama told Jeffrey Goldberg who is a reporter then, now the editor of The Atlantic Magazine, in, I believe it was 2014, a little bit after that, it was, you know, obviously in the wake of Obama had taken some actions vis-a-vis, you know, what had happened with Crimea and so on and so forth. But Obama said directly to Goldberg, he says, Ukraine is not a core issue for the United States. It is a core issue for Russia. And this is exactly the rationale that Obama used to not send the, you know, offensive weaponry, the anti-tank missiles, which, by the way, Trump, so-called anti-war president, that was one of the first things he did was send those anti-tank missiles, the javelin missiles, to Ukraine. So, you know, that's a little bit of history people should remember uh, when they're spreading these these very dangerous mis- misstatements about Trump being less warlike. But be that as it may, I, I mean, you know, you're hearing this from me. I, I would say Barack Obama is a decidedly more moderate mainstream figure than I am, Sean. Um, and even he was admitting these points very clearly. I think that we've seen it from all number of mainstream commentators over the years that the issue of Ukraine, and certainly we've seen this from the U.S. government, from documents that have been released since the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, that you know the Ukraine issue was a key issue for Russia, and it was one that's guaranteed to upset Russia in pushing the U.S. forces right up to the border, almost certainly will 
raise the possibility of war, raise the possibility of conflict with all these other add-on pieces. So when you start to tell the different elements of it, the different nuances, the different realities of the post-2014 government and the makeup of some of these people and how you know it's shot through with these far-right Nazi-sympathizing individuals, how it's hardcore neoliberal economics that is destroying many of the handful of, of gains that were left over from the Soviet era in terms of workers' rights and labor rights and uh, protecting against the total rapaciousness of free market capitalism, that there are deep, long historical issues at play on both sides of the conflict and that, you know, to some degree, how one feels about it is very much determined um, in that region by how you determine, you know, a thousand years of history in many different ways. Uh, that when you start to look at it like that, it looks way more complicated. And it seems like, well, hmm, maybe the U.S. shouldn't be stoking the flames of war. Maybe we shouldn't be playing with fire, pushing right up to the border with Russia. Maybe we shouldn't be making Ukraine a pawn in, you know, whatever differences the U.S. and Russia may have, because who knows how this is going to go. And maybe these people aren't as worth supporting as everyone is saying we are, because when you look at what they're actually doing, you know, it's not it's not all all sweetness and light. And so I think like, you know, it's, it's one of the oldest phrases that truth is the first casualty of war. And I think this is exactly what we're seeing right now in the conflict in Ukraine. Yeah, definitely. We're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Myself and Jackie Lukeman continue to be joined by Eugene per year. And Eugene, of course, the United States has given an incredible amount of financial and, excuse me, military support and resources to the war in Ukraine. I honestly can't keep up with how many billions of dollars have been sent uh, at this point. It seems like every other week it gets, you know, jacked up by some other insane amount. But what we do know is that recently the the House uh, passed an $839 billion defense bill, which is actually $37 billion more than what Biden requested. And uh, this came down to a vote of 180 Democrats and 149 Republicans in a move that uh, Mike Rogers, who's a Republican representative from Alabama, he called it, quote, the definition of a bipartisan bill. Now, Eugene, this comes at a time in the United States where we're dealing with you know, a serious inflation. I mean, you've got Larry Summers, uh, the head of uh, uh, the Federal Reserve, talking about we got to maintain uh, a 5% unemployment over some period of years to try to uh, fight inflation. I mean, that's easy for him to say. He, he's a multi-millionaire. And, and considering all of these issues, you know, both domestic and international, understanding the connection, I'm I'm really wondering how you think this will reflect on politics in the U.S. as we draw nearer and nearer to uh, the uh, the midterms here in this country. Now, you recently had 
a really good uh, episode of your podcast, The Punch Out, where you discussed uh, sort of uh, the reality. It was like a critical breakdown of different things that could impact the midterms. And you gave some great uh, statistics and polling and sort of contextualized them and sort of contextualized polling in general. And I won't ask you to repeat those numbers uh, uh, from memory. Folks can check out that episode if they're interested. But the reason I wanted to ask is because, you know, on the show, we felt that they, you know, without being too predictive that, I mean, the Democrats are like in a very bad place because, I mean, the the Biden administration just has not panned out well in terms of what it's actually been able to achieve for the people that the Democrats uh, consider their base in a number of ways, whether we're talking about the Build Back Better bill or, you know, uh, uh, Biden's uh, sort of uh, a bizarre uh, desire to fund the police to the hilt and things like this. But the picture that you painted was, you know, a bit more complicated and it actually seemed like things may be a bit tighter uh, than we may think. Now, of course, we don't have a crystal ball, but when we talk about sort of uh, how circumstances are looking at this point and sort of the reality behind some of the narratives we hear about, you know, which uh, party is really down for for the working class. I mean, how do you see that sort of emerging as we inch closer and closer to that time? Yeah, no, great points. Uh, you know, I think to, to be raising this and, and, you know, drawing attention to it, we're at that point. I mean, you know, there's a lot. I mean, I'll, I'll just say first and foremost, yeah, I mean, the polling shows that it's pretty much a dead heat in terms of, you know, what's known as the so-called generic ballot, which is basically just like, do you want Republicans or do you want Democrats to win? Um, so it's pretty close. But the sort of tricky thing about that is, and I mentioned this in the piece, is people do not vote generally, right? They vote for very specific candidates. They don't actually vote for parties. So the particular sort of dynamics of who's running and who's not running plays a big role. I mean, and that's why you see things like the Democrats in Illinois spending $30 million trying to boost the uh, candidate for governor who they perceive to be you know, the least electable, that guy did in fact win um, in order to give themselves an opportunity because I think Democrats feel in a lot of races that some of the Republican candidates are, you know, quite frankly, so uh, extremely far right that they, you know, will fail to be able to win in, in statewide elections against, you know, more moderate Democrats. And the fact that, you know, most sort of center left and left wing positions when stripped of party ID tend to be far more popular on a, on a issue-by-issue basis than almost any issue. I mean, that's one notable thing about Republicans is that when you look at sort of issue-by-issue, issue, almost all of their main issues are minoritarian issues, so it's an interesting fact. But um, putting that aside, I think what we're seeing is that, you know, the reality of what we see around us every day, uh, the failure of the Democrats to do anything, does seem like it's probably going to crash in a negative sense against them in the House. It's harder to tell. But, you know, the nature of the House, the gerrymandering that goes on, it seems that not only are there, and this happens almost every election cycle, it feels with after, you know, not every election cycle, every time that the redistricts are redrawn, there are fewer and fewer competitive seats. Uh, and it's like each time it changes, there's like the, the, the least amount of competitive seats ever um, and the most amount of gerrymandered seats. So it seems that, you know, barring many different things, and we can come back around to that, um, you know, it'll be difficult for Democrats to hold on. The Senate, though, is a different animal. And it seems that there's certainly, at least, the Democrats can hold every seat. It seems like there's a pretty good possibility they'll pick up two seats, 
because in both Ohio and in Pennsylvania, their candidates seem to be doing significantly better than the Republicans. So, you know, I mean, I think the way we parse elections and the way we look at these things, and, and I'm, I really appreciate you, you know, shouting us out on the punch out, and I hope people can listen to the whole thing. I think it was last Thursday. Um, it's called the Midterm Elections in the Working Class. It's a podcast. You can get it at Spotify, Apple Music, anywhere you get your podcast. Um, is you, you know, elections are really complicated, and I think polling is super, super useful. I love to look at a lot of polling. I you know sift through a lot of polling, but polling only really captures one element of who you are, right? Like you get polled by your age, you get polled by your race, and you get polled by some other a number of other potential factors, right? Likely voter, non likely voter, you know, education level, income level, all these different things, and so you can say X person is voting for Y or our person is voting for Z, uh, you know, based on these sort of general trends. But then when you start to sort of slot them together, like you could say most people making $50,000 or less are going to vote one way. But then if you say, well, most people making $50,000 or less under the age of 30, it could go the other way. And then you could say most people making less than $50,000 under the age of 30 and women, and it could go another way, right? And so you have to sort of look at polling in order to be able to craft these you know, sort of complex and complicated dynamics. And that's why I think a lot of people get really tripped up when they look at the elections, because really what is happening in the elections is, and I think almost every single person who we would stop on the street, every person listening to this right now, you should ask yourself this question. Is politics controlled by big money? Yes or no? I think almost every American will say, yes, politics is controlled by big money. I think if we were in, you know, in cattle ranching territory in Montana, or in the South Bronx, most people we ask are going to tell us the same thing there. Politics controlled by big money. Politics controlled by big money and rich people. And both coalitions of big money and rich people, the one called themselves Democrats, one called themselves the Republicans, they have basically the same core agenda, which is why we can see that there's gridlock in Congress right now, because the majority in the Senate is actually conservative, and many Democrats have the same agenda. They have the same core agenda to keep the capitalist system going and to not try anything that might give too much favor to average everyday working people over and above rich, powerful capitalists. And they carry that agenda out by creating a range of other agendas and other issues by which they divide the population uh, into, you know, varying camps. So people, that's why I brought up this point about polling, because people really aren't that well represented by the two parties. And that's sort of the point I'm making. So a lot of what you see with the elections and a lot of what you see with polling is basically people making a choice that is, you know, to some degree imposed upon them. And I think that's where we're seeing sort of the tightness enter into this election is the main issue in every election is always the economy. The main issue is definitely inflation. Neither political party is offering any solution to inflation. The Republican solution is even worse than the Democratic Party solution. And so in the context and the lack of a compelling narrative by either political party that can carry the number one issue, you're seeing other issues that are of great importance to people, whether it be gun control, whether it be abortion rights uh, on the right, whether it be, you know, issues around, you know, uh, gender and things like that critical race theory that are driving a lot of the sort of political things behind it. And since those issues tend to be more niche issues, it means that the population is more tightly divided overall about who's the better uh, uh, choice. So there's a lot more to it than that, but I think it's a very tight race in many ways. I think it'll continue to be tight. I think it's going to be governed by whether or not the Democrats are able to do anything that makes people seem uh, makes people think that they care about the economy and care about working class people who are struggling. If they can pull that off, they might even be able to save the house. But that seems 
um, you know, pretty dubious. So I think it's going to be tight, you know, leading up into the fall. But I think we have to take with a grain of salt a lot of these. This, you know, this group of people is for this. This party is for the working class. This is for that. It's, you know, two big business parties that are dividing people in a million different ways across classes and across every other, you know, type of identity people may have in order to get their way, which is to make sure the donors stay rich. People are not represented by either party. I mean, I think that's so true and definitely representative of uh, a lot of the issues that uh, the rank and file person in this country is facing. And, you know, speaking of how this plays out on the class level, Eugene, I mean, I I mentioned in passing earlier um, the issue of inflation in the United States. And I was looking at some stats that said that, you know, inflation in the U.S. is up 8 percent from May of 2021 with wages only going up 5.2%. So yet again, uh, wages not keeping up with uh, everything that's happening here. And this happening while the billionaires in the United States, of which there are 745, collectively added a little over $2 trillion in their wealth. And so it, it's just clear that the uh, the wealth gap in the United States, in this capitalist country, is just growing wider and wider and wider with no real uh, uh, solution in sight, or, or at least not one that's coming from uh, the political mainstream, that's not coming from either of these uh, ruling class parties who, as we've been discussing, don't really uh, uh, represent the interest of poor, working, and oppressed people. And so I have to believe, Eugene, that uh, this is something that will obviously continue to have a serious impact on uh, uh, the politics of the United States. But not only that, I think it should represent something to the movement people in this country, to the the, the progressive minded people, folks who consider themselves radicals or revolutionaries or socialists or communists and what have you. When we talk about what a real solution looks like, we often say here on by any means necessary that um, Uh, spontaneous consciousness is not going to be enough to really make that change. Even if it's true that people are seemingly becoming more and more aware of these things as they watch their own conditions deteriorate, um, no matter how bad things get, it will still take an intentional organizing effort amongst the struggling people in this country to uh, uh, really not only address these particular issues that we're talking about, but to literally change uh, this country itself and the system and the society under which it is governed. And we also say by any means necessary that in truth, I mean, we'll either have socialism or we'll have societal collapse. And when you look at the sort of uh, collective impact of all of the pressing issues um, in the U.S. right now, that really does seem to be the case. And you recently published a piece on uh, liberationschool.org entitled The U.S. State and the U.S. Revolution, where you sort of break down, you know, the real class character of not only the or Origins of the United States itself, but also of the uh, state apparatus of the U.S. and what we mean when we say the state and the kind of effort that it will take to really change these things in a critical and, and enduring way. And the central question that you pose in this piece, I think, is an old one. When you talk about how, uh, uh, you know, will the people lay hold to the institutions and the way that this society and this system is already set up? Will they simply make an improvement on the system as it is? 
or will they struggle for something new? And I have to say, in my humble opinion, it doesn't seem like there's any hope at all, frankly. I have no hope or a faith in this capitalist system to be able to resolve or even really address a lot of the pressing issues that emerge out of its contradictions. It, to me, uh, uh, is going to uh, uh, necessitate a completely new system, a completely new reality. And in truth, Eugene, I think it will require a socialist reconstruction of the United States as we know it. I think it's a good point. I, 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 I certainly agree with you. I, I mean, look, you know, you look at the issue of inflation, as we've pointed out many, many different times on the punch out and other you know, things we've done at Breakthrough News, you know, every dollar of inflation, 54 cents is going to profit. 30 some odd cents is going to supply chain issues, quote unquote, and about eight cents to wages. So realistically, the reason inflation is shooting up massively right now is not because of supply chain issues. It's not that that wouldn't have raised prices to some degree, but the real reason why is that the corporations, especially the big monopolies, are taking advantage of the fact that there are various sort of crisis-level things happening because of COVID-19, and they're using it to jack up their profits and pad their profits on the backs of average everyday people. So it's very clear. It's empirical. It's out there. All these other things, people say, oh, it was this COVID-19 spending, and we couldn't have any more spending. Well, you can measure that, actually. You just have to look at the difference between potential GDP and actual GDP to see if the economy is producing more than uh, it can consume. The reality is, when you look at that metric, it's not showing that. So there's not too much random spending. People were not given too much unemployment dollars. It's profit, it's profiteering, it's corporate greed, pure and simple. And when you look at that, and it speaks to your issue about the system, what does it say that both major political parties, and I just want to be 100% clear, both major political parties are 100% behind this, that their only prescription for addressing inflation is to raise interest rates, which will indeed address inflation, but it will crash the economy. Many more people will lose their jobs, will lose wages, lose income, um, you know, all of the various negative things that come with recessions and economic downturns that we know about. And given, you know, the state of this Wall Street casino gambling economy, it could be much worse than people say. That's what they're going to do. Rather than raise taxes, windfall profit taxes, one big corporation that have been going gangbusters for two years. In just the first quarter of 2022, $2.8 trillion was made in profit by corporations in the United States. $2.8 trillion in profits just the first quarter. These people are going gangbusters. And rather than require them to have to pay some of that money in taxes, that they don't raise prices through the roof in order to profiteer, they would rather crash the economy and balance the inflation question on the backs of working class people than the ultra rich. I mean, that's the kind of system we live in. One that, that, against all facts and all reason, will favor the rich over and above anyone else. You look at the issue of infrastructure. In the so-called bipartisan infrastructure bill, they did not put enough money in there to fix all the bridges that could collapse at any time or the dams that could collapse at any time or to get all the lead out of the water uh, and many other different priorities that, that I think most people think are good from infrastructure. Why? Because they didn't want to put more money in taxes. So again, we come back to the same issue, that the super wealthy and the super rich, whether they be individuals or corporations, who have had the best two years they've ever had, especially billionaires and the biggest Fortune 100 companies that are out there, uh, rather than do anything that would require them to have any level of social obligation, one dime over what they have now, they would rather let bridges collapse and millions of people lose their jobs. I mean, if that's not the description of a totally broken, even if it's working the way it's supposed to, which it is, but in terms of moral sense, 
in terms of, you know, human sense. If that doesn't speak to something that's totally collapsed and totally failed, that at all costs, the interests of profit and rich people must come above everyone else. I mean, they won't fix all the bridges that could collapse at any time. Like, if something that basic isn't happening because rich people would rather, you know, not pay taxes and buy a helicopter so they don't have to drive across the, across the bridges, that lets you know we're in, like, a nearly apocalyptic collapse data scenario I don't know what else could happen that would speak to that, um, but I think it speaks to why we need a totally different system in this country and in the world because we, we can't afford to, to continue to go forward this way. The bridges will collapse, the planet will burn, uh, and the economy will tank. Absolutely. For the earth to survive, capitalism must go. Well, we're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back, so please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's two. 02521-1320. I am here. Eugene Perrier is here as we continue. And Eugene, uh, touching a bit more on the uh, geopolitical character of a lot of the issues that we're facing right now. Of course, we've been discussing um, the, the state of things, if you will, uh, with U.S. President Joe Biden and sort of politics, both uh, inside and outside the U.S. And I was thinking, you know, over the break, about Biden's uh, recent visit to the Middle East, you know, first beginning in Israel, where he felt the need to, you know, give a, a full throated, uh, uh, you know, vote of support for Zionism as a, a, a project, of course, in doing so, uh, lending support to the uh, racist genocidal campaign against the uh, Palestinians that has been happening there for years. Uh, and from there, uh, he went over to um, Saudi Arabia. Uh, you know, uh, you know, of course, the United States, uh, a country that is a beacon of democracy and human rights. I mean, it only uh, makes sense for him to meet with, uh, you know, this uh, unelected monarchy. Right. And I feel like a part of, you know, this uh, meeting with Israel, uh, where he met with Israeli Prime Minister Yair Lapid, was about sort of doubling down on both countries commitment to uh, threatening Iran. And I found that, I mean, I didn't find that surprising, but it, it was interesting timing as we recently have also seen the relationship between uh, Russia and Iran sort of become uh, a little stronger as the leadership of those countries uh, uh, begin to strengthen their connection as well. And so I, I'm wondering what you, you make of that, Eugene. I mean, not only sort of Biden's recent trip here, but I mean, why you think he felt the need to sort of hop from Israel to Saudi Arabia, I feel like there are, uh, I feel like it's sort of reflective uh, of situations happening both in the U.S. and uh, Washington's interest outside of it. Yeah, you know, it's an interesting question. I mean, you know, I'm one of the people who felt the trip was a little bit more motivated by domestic politics, mm. uh, even though it's part of, you know, a long-running regional agenda for the United States. I mean, I think, you know, bottom line, since the Obama administration sort of 
you know, previewed the issue of the pivot to Asia. The whole issue has been how does the U.S. find a way to disengage from the Middle East, um, which obviously is also geostrategically very critical for a number of different reasons. You know, in many ways, it's the crossroads of the world in terms of world trade. Obviously, you know, oil and gas is big there. Uh, and, you know, the sovereign wealth funds, because of that, are big there, and that in and of itself is relevant to the sort of global economy. So, you know, it's not something that the U.S. just wants to, as Biden said, they won't, just walk away from. But ultimately, you can only do but so many different things from the point of view of world domination. You have to, you know, have some places that can take care of themselves a little bit more. It's a perennial challenge for the United States, and you can see that they're failing at it and that their imperial overreach is is flailing, uh, including in this region, which I'll get to. But I think, obviously, the goal from the United States and obviously Trump supercharges with the Abraham Accords, Biden is continuing with the Abraham Accords is to try to use the sort of Israeli nuclear shield, if you will, as the anchor for an anti-Iran defensive alliance, so-called defensive alliance, I think in many ways it would be offensive, that, you know, can, I think what the U.S. would hope, uh, you know, maintain a balance of power politic between the so-called pro-Iran bloc, the resistance bloc, and this sort of Israel-Saudi, you know, pro-Western bloc. I mean, I think in their dreams, that is how it would work. I think in reality, um, that's not how it will work. So anyway, I'm like, I want to come back to that. But, you know, the reason I thought it was more about domestic politics is, you know, quite frankly, very little came out of this trip. Um, it was, you know, most of the things that they did felt like they could have been handled vis-a-vis an email. Um, no major announcements were made whatsoever. No major breakthroughs in any way, shape, or form. I think what this was really about was Biden wanted to go to Saudi Arabia to make it seem to people who are worried that gas prices are too high, that he's going out of his way to address the issue of the prices at the pump, even going back on his previous, you know, stance that he would make Saudi Arabia a pariah state, like he's not afraid to go back on what he said then to go help your gas prices. And I think by sort of latching on to this Abraham Accords normalization train um, with the trip to Israel and then the flight from Israel to Saudi Arabia, uh, is designed, I think, to appeal to the voting bloc of pro-Zionist people, which is, you know, relatively large. Of course, it goes, you know, well beyond Jewish Americans, and many Jewish Americans are not Zionists. Uh, it, you can people of all types who, for whatever reason, like U.S. imperial control of the world, are very in favor of Israel, and in critical swing states. That's, you know, oftentimes, you know, you look at Pennsylvania, you look at Ohio, you look at some of these places that are in play, you know, those kind of politics could make a difference. Florida is not really in play, but it's another state where the Democrats have, I think, what most people consider a strong candidate. And so I think he's trying to, to, to present a foreign policy pose. I think it's the same reason why he won't do anything to increase the flow of oil coming from Venezuela, right? Um, even though, you know, he's claiming he wants to show about inflation, is he's trying to kind of have his cake and eat it too and triangulate and hit all these various little, um, you know, niches in order to see if he can increase turnout or at the very least prevent Republicans from having a stick that they can beat Democrats with um, in areas Democrats need to win in order to succeed in the midterm elections, especially more affluent uh, suburban voters in a couple different states. So I think that's what it's really about is sending a message about what Biden's priorities are to voters in the United States. I think very little progress was made on almost anything here. You know, and, and I have to say, you know, the things that were put out there are deeply underwhelming to me in terms of what's happening. I mean, Saudi Arabia said, well, they're going to increase the $13, billion, uh, 13 uh, million barrels of oil per day. Well, they already produced 12, and they were already planning to go to 13. So that's not even a new announcement. And, you know, OPEC is already under quota, so it doesn't really make and by say under quota, they're not producing as much as they say they are that they could. The OPEC plus, which is OPEC plus Russia and some other countries, so it actually 
Saudi Arabia sticking with their agreement uh, with Russia and, of course, the other OPEC nations in order to continue to, to collude to keep oil prices as high as they possibly can, um, and that the Saudis aren't really looking to do that much to, to help out on this issue. You know, this summit that was happening in Saudi Arabia, you know, Iraq, of course, was playing a central role there and making the point of, you know, their attempts to mediate between Iran and Saudi Arabia, this effect of both UAE and Qatar, uh, you know, well, Qatar for some time now, UAE recently sort of warming up to Iran. And of course, uh, you know, the sheiks in Dubai have been warming up to President Assad in Syria. Uh, it doesn't really, you know, Israel itself is also very close with Russia, sells high technology to China, even over U.S. Uh, objections. So, you know, I think the reality is, is that there's a range of different contradictions that to me, is in the of course, the greatest one being that the U.S. is doing absolutely nothing to address the plight of the Palestinian people. Um, and so they can't resolve any of these questions um, until that central key is, is resolved, which the U.S. won't do. So I think you can see that, you know, the U.S. dream uh, is a pipe dream, that there is no way that they can create this sort of, you know, Arab-NATO kind of alliance that they're grasping at straws and play, and, and multiple players are trying to play the U.S. off against other forces, and they have their own machinations. And it just shows that U.S. imperial strategy overall, I think, is at a complete and total cul-de-sac at a dead end. Um, almost everywhere in the world, it's still extraordinarily destructive, but that's all it is. There's no constructive action uh, any way, shape, or form in U.S. foreign policy. It's all destructive. It's all war. Um, it's all you know using blunt instruments to beat other nations into compliance with the Washington-determined rules. But either way, I think the trip was really about the midterms. Yeah, and and speaking of, you know, how this is reflecting on Biden uh, domestically, I mean, I feel like more and more, uh, you know, of course, as we see Biden's um, approval ratings continue to dwindle, I feel like elements are uh, uh, sort of wondering aloud about uh, Biden's future and uh, particularly as it pertains to 2024. I mean, I'm looking at a piece here um, that was published on The Hill today entitled Frustrated Democrats Mole Drastic Step Challenging Biden in 2024. And in it, they quote Norman Solomon, who is the founder of Roots Action, which folks may be familiar with, as saying, quote, unless Biden comes to his senses and announces that he won't run again, a contentious battle for the nomination seems very likely. The president may not realize or care that the trajectory of his policies has been taking him farther and farther from the Democratic Party base. But his distance from that base would likely be catastrophic for Biden if he tries to get nominated again. Again, And it seems that uh, liberals, uh, you know, little by little are really starting to sort of raise concerns about, you know, the possibility of a 2024 uh, uh, run for Biden, because I, I think they realize the uh, the uh, perception of both him as an individual and the Democrats as a, a, a party at this point. So, I mean, what do you uh, now? Obviously, this is just one sort of uh, uh, example, but I, I have to believe that there is at least some feeling within elements of the Democratic Party party that Biden is doing more harm to them than good. And particularly looking at the fact that, as we point out often on the show, the Democrats don't have much of a bench. I mean, you know, what do you think this sort of thing could mean for the Democrats uh, uh, moving forward as I mean, it just seems uh, uh, as their image is getting sort of, you know, more and more uh, uh, sullied as people continue to see, you know, one broken promise after another. I mean, it seems like the Democrats are courting extreme disaster because, I mean, I, I doubt there's, I, I don't think there's almost no Democrats who probably really want to see Biden run again. I think even people who are like fine with it, maybe even think, yeah, why not? Uh, you know, I think he's doing a decent job. 
would probably jump at the chance for someone who, you know, was they thought was equally as good in different ways, who was younger and more energetic and things like that. But the reality is, and you spoke to it, I mean, and I think the quote from, from Norman spoke to it as well, there is no other option. I mean, I mean you have to remember, Biden is only there because he was the only consensus option the Democrats get, like of every Democrat in America. The only people who they, who could who were able to run and stayed in long enough the, that there could be a consensus amongst all the various sort of factions that yes, this person is better than Trump was Biden. I mean, so that in and of itself should tell you something about how internally divided the Democrats are. And I talk about this all the time in many different things. The reality is, is for Republicans, there's built-in party unity because the first, no matter how far to the right you go you're still very pro-capitalist. And so you're not really challenging the core identity of the two major political parties in America, which is to maintain capitalism. But for the Democrats, it's trickier because the further left you go, the more you're critiquing capitalism. And at a certain point, the people who you know keep the lights on and pay the bills in these billion-dollar campaigns, they don't want to hear that. And so that's why you can have Bernie, very popular with Democratic voters, but he couldn't win, couldn't succeed because he couldn't. The donor class wasn't going to deal with him. Then you had, uh, you had Bloomberg, who was also in there towards the end, Hated by all Democratic voters, even though ruling class people liked him. Of course, he is one. I think he's like the eighth richest person in America or something like that. Um, so all you had really left was was Biden. And now you're in a situation where you have more and more people who are in the face of the Democrats or at least are willing to vote for Democrats who recognize that at least some level of reins has to be put to the, the, the just, you know, runaway horse carriage that capitalism has become that's causing massive chaos in this country and all around the world, but the donors don't want that, and they're resisting it at all costs, and that cleavage is making it impossible for the Democrats to do anything, because they can't agree on anything, because similar to the Whigs, who in the 1850s were split on slavery and then split into two parties, North and South, and then really splintered and created five political parties in the whole country because the issue of slavery was so fundamental. The issue of capitalism is that fundamental. Really, Nothing can be done to improve any of the major problems that exist on Earth right now without some level of, you know, saying profit isn't the most important thing. I mean, people who know me know I'm a socialist, but even if you don't want to go as far as me, I dare someone to name one major problem in America right now that, you know, that's, you know, problem for working class people that is going to be resolved without putting some higher level of control by some form of democratic governance over the big banks over the big money interests and all that. I don't know if anyone really believes that. And that's why I think, you know, demagogues in both parties campaign very hard against monopolies and corporations because they know that people understand this basic fact. Um, and I think when you when you start to look at just that reality that uh, that is, is, is in existence, it puts you in a situation where, you know, who can run? Who can step up? Who can represent any other interests in a way that's going to create a unified situation. So I think the Democrats are in huge trouble. I don't even think Trump is that strong of a candidate. I actually think that all the other Republican candidates are extraordinarily weak. Um, I mean, the, the extreme reality of the positions they're taking to the point where they're just saying things that are just completely absurd. Um, you know, 10-year-olds being raped have to carry babies to term. Uh, you can't teach that the founding fathers own slaves. Uh, I mean, you know, these are the things that are considered popular that these people like Ron DeSantis are doing. So the reality is, no matter how popular they are, the Republicans will tank on a on a nationwide scale. That's clear. Um, so I think Republicans are in a bad spot, too, but they have a lot more party unity. 
And I think that that counts for a lot because I think they have more party unity and more enthusiasm in their base. The Democrats have no party unity and a total lack of enthusiasm because nothing is happening. I mean, Biden is even doing the things he campaigned on, like uh, canceling $10,000 with the student debt, which he can do 100 percent on his own. So in a way, I think the Republicans are in pole position. I think most Democrats are fully aware of that. But I think most Democrats, even the ones who want Biden to step aside, recognize that almost anyone else they nominate will be so divisive in their own base, they won't be able to unite all the Democrats around them. So I think they don't know what to do. And I think that's partially why Biden is hanging on, because I think he himself is aware of this, and he doesn't want to unleash the beast, as it were, uh, of all these people fighting over the next two years to see who does it. But it would be interesting to see after the midterms what announcements he makes. I mean, it just seems it's almost like elder abuse for him to run again. I, and I hate to say it like that, but I, I mean, it really, you read the article in the New York Times, which was the first mainstream, you know, quote unquote, liberal lead, leaning newspaper to take on the issue of Biden's age. Um, it's obviously very clear that his aides are, are quite concerned um, that they're doing a huge amount to manage his schedule, which is makes total sense. If I was, you know, however old he is, 80-some years old or getting close to it, I doubt I could do that sort of job. I mean, this is obviously a very taxing job. Um, it's clear that he's not fully up to it. And to run again, I think, would be almost malpractice. I think we might end up in 25th Amendment territory before the end of it. So um, I think that's also that physical element of it is just is just key. But, yeah, I think it's difficult for the Democrats. I truly think that they're headed into, um, you know, potentially the extinction as a political party. Um the same could be true of the Republicans, because I think the two major parties are just totally unable to grapple with the reality um, that exists now of the, you know, sort of deeper uh, challenges that are facing humanity. Yeah. And, you know, Eugene, you're actually not the first person to uh, uh, say that it's that what's happening with Biden is is elder abuse. I mean, that that definitely seems to be the case. And, you know, it's funny. A couple of weeks ago, I was in um, I can't remember if I was in Brussels or Munich, but I was in uh, a Uber on the way to my hotel and I was just talking with uh, the driver and he asked me, he was like, you know, uh, how old is uh, Joe Biden? I was like, I think he's like you know, 78, 79 or something like that. And the guy kind of chuckled and said, you have my condolences, sir. <laughs> no. And so that's that's kind of what we're dealing with. And to be honest, when Biden was first elected, I, I was actually hesitant to try to put like too much weight on his age just because I'm like, yeah, OK, so like he's old. And but I feel like to me, that was kind of the least of his problems. I was sort of more focused on the political nature of his issues. Both historically and contemporarily. But I mean, at this point, I'm like, ah, yeah, I, I think it's 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 an issue. I mean, when you have the head of, you know, uh, uh, most powerful country on Earth, richest, most powerful country on Earth, the imperialist superpower on the world stage, and he's consistently in public looking like he doesn't know what day it is. I mean, at what point, you know, are we really honest about it and make the statement firmly that this person is unfit? And then we have to ask the question, well, why did uh, the liberal wing of the ruling class in uh, the establishment leadership of the uh, Democratic Party shoehorn Joe into the last election to begin with? Because it was already a swollen field with uh, uh, the Democrats. I mean, every random person was coming out of the woodwork, um, you know, as different shades of an anti-Bernie, which is what I think that was all about. And then Joe Biden just comes in out of nowhere. And I remember thinking, well, there's just no way that Joe is going to really be able to get over this hump. But of course he was, because that's what that element wanted. But we're going to leave it there for today. 
day here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. One thank you, Gene, per year so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow with an all-new episode. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By Any Means Necessary.